session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Um, before I get started, the book of the week for this week is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. This is a classic book in relationships and love, um, talking about the different ways that we express and experience love and feeling loved and how that can be very important in helping couples understand how to love each other and make sure their partner's feeling loved and that they are receiving love. So I hope you'll join me in reading this book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And I'll actually be talking on, about the book on Wednesday's show, because on Monday's show, I'll be having a guest, uh, family attorney Raymond Heckmat will be joining me to talk about prenuptial agreements. Um, it can be a controversial topic, and lots of times people in the process of prenuptial agreements end up damaging their relationship. Um, but we're going to talk with attorney Raymond Heckman about how that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And I'm interested to hear his insights on that. So if you tune in Monday night, you can hear that show. Um, but wanted to start off today, uh, continuing a bit on the theme of the book I discussed on Monday's show, which was the happiness trap by Russ Harris, which focused on acceptance and commitment therapy. And a big uh, philosophy in that type of therapy or that modality is that we accept what we're experiencing. We don't try to fight it. We don't try to resist it. We accept it. Um, and this is sometimes contrary to what most people think we should do, which is that if you have a negative feeling, what we're supposed to do is try to get rid of it as soon as we can or ignore it completely, numb it with drugs or alcohol or get mad at ourselves about having that feeling and try to struggle to fight it. But unfortunately, when we try to resist things, when we try to fight something that we're feeling or experiencing, it doesn't make it go away, maybe in the short term, but really what it does is it makes it come back stronger and makes it harder to deal with. So the um, philosophy there in acceptance and commitment therapy is that you accept and acknowledge what's there and even make space for your negative feelings, the ones we call negative feelings, and allow them to be there and accept that it's there and that it's okay. And you don't try to immediately get rid of it. Now, also in the book, he discusses a concept described as uh, surfing an urge. And that's what I want to talk about a bit today. This idea that if you have a craving to do something that maybe you're trying to stop or you don't think is good for you, rather than resisting it or fighting it or, or telling yourself you don't have it or you shouldn't have it, 
acknowledging that it is there, which maybe again to some people sounds counterintuitive, but to accept, okay, I want to have a drink. If you're trying to cut back on drinking, all of a sudden I have that craving and recognizing it and being in touch with that. And I came across um, an article that talked about a very short-term study that really can't be considered a full-on study that was um, taken place where they asked people who were heavy drinkers but were not alcoholics to do one of two things or have one of two types of training sessions that were very short for One group, they were randomly placed to get a training session in relaxation strategies. The other group got an 11-minute training session in mindfulness techniques to help them recognize cravings without acting on them. So again, it's not that you lie to yourself and say you don't want to do the thing you're trying to stop or you don't like doing it anymore, but recognizing that it's there, but I don't have to act on it. I can feel something and not do something. I can have a craving for something or an urge to do something and not necessarily act on that craving or that urge. And I'll talk a little bit more about the study found, but the reason why I think this is important is because sometimes when working with someone who's dealing with an addiction, or even if it's not a full-blown addiction, but trying to change a habit, they think they have to lie to themselves about what they're trying to do. And by that, I mean, for example, if you're someone who's an alcoholic or who drinks regularly, all of a sudden alcohol is not going to become disgusting or gross or something you don't like. Or if you're trying to go on a healthy diet, it doesn't mean that sweets or fatty foods are going to taste bad to you or you're not going to like them anymore. It's just that you're choosing that although you enjoy those things, you have a bigger goal that's going to mean that you're going to not enjoy those things. They don't become, they don't taste bad to you. You don't dislike them now, but you have a bigger goal. That means you're going to think about the bigger picture, not the instant gratification. And so you can even recognize I'm craving that donut or I'm craving that those French fries, but I'm choosing not to eat them. But sometimes people think we should tell ourselves, no, I don't even like them anymore. I don't enjoy them anymore. I don't want them anymore. I hate them now. And really that's not the truth. In very rare exceptions, that does happen to some people where, for example, they get sick eating something or drinking something, and then now they're repulsed by it. For for most of us, most of the time, that's not going to be how it goes. You're still going to want the things you wanted before just because you have a new goal. But what you're trying to remember is that because I have a bigger goal, I'm going to not enjoy something in the moment or I'm going to not act on an urge or a craving because I want to achieve that bigger goal or something is more important to me than feeling that feeling in the moment. So they looked at these heavy drinkers, and there were 68 people that were in this study, and they found that over the next week, the people who received the mindfulness training versus those who received the relaxation training, they drank considerably less when they compared them to the relaxation study or uh, technique, those individuals who got that training. Now, interestingly, right after they did both of these training sessions, both groups felt a decrease in their cravings. The relaxation group actually felt a stronger reduction initially. But over the week, they found that the ones who got the mindfulness training, those are the ones who drank considerably less. And so this is uh, promising in that it's telling us that, again, this study was very short term. They only did it for a week, so we don't know about the lasting effects. But just an 11-minute training 
on mindfulness was able to have such a big effect, that's something considerable. And to me, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of our cravings or the urges that we have when people end up acting on them, they almost become on an autopilot. They're not being very mindful. So they start going towards their drug of choice or towards the food or towards the alcohol almost without thinking about it very much. And if they actually are able to become mindful of what they are doing, become aware of what's going on, they're more likely to be able to resist that urge or that temptation when it is there. But when we don't allow ourselves to think about what's going on, we end up just going into autopilot and going into those modes of actions that end up creating the same problems that we have been dealing with. So it's something to keep in mind when you are trying to make some kind of change in your life. And first you have to recognize when you're trying to make a change, especially if it's a habit, a habit especially if it's something that involves some kind of chemical, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs, all of them have physiological components that they have in our body as well. It's going to be difficult and you have to be ready for that. And again, the first day you try to stop, you have to be ready that it's not going to be easy to stop. And your mind is going to try to trick you into breaking that uh, commitment that you've made. I know that sounds almost like uh, our mind is evil in some way, but our mind is geared towards the instant gratification to feel what's good in the moment. And I've heard a hundred and one or maybe a thousand and one different stories and justifications from people for why they drank one more time or ate the thing they said they weren't going to eat or do the drugs they weren't going to do. Oh, I want to start on a Monday anyway, so let me enjoy this weekend. I think most people, when it comes to eating, they can probably relate to that one too. Or, okay, well, I had a hard week, so today I'm going to just give myself a break and I need to take the edge off anyway. Um, we can find various reasons to trick ourselves into going back and we have to be ready that that's going to happen. But that if we want to make that change, we have to be aware that the urge is going to come. You're going to feel that craving. Don't get mad at yourself if that happens. That's something else that I also hear people say, how could I want to drink again when it's caused me so many problems? How could I go back to eating those foods when I've been trying to change it for so long? Why did I go back to smoking when I knew it's hurting me and harming me in this way? And it's easy to go to that place of shaming ourselves, but it's better to recognize that although it's very easy to think that we should just stop because quote unquote logically we should stop, it's not that simple. And as I discussed when I was talking about the book, The Willpower Instinct, it actually turns out that when we're harder on ourselves, when we slip, even if you end up giving into that craving, when you're harder on yourself, it's actually harder for you to recover and you're more likely to keep breaking that uh, commitment that you've made and go back to drinking or eating poorly or smoking or whatever it is you're trying to stop. The harder you are on yourself, the less likely you are to be successful. So when you have the craving especially for that, you can't get upset with yourself. That's natural. If you've been smoking for several years every day, there's a physiological reaction. You've built up the tolerance that as soon as you wake up, you're going to want to have a cigarette. Everything in your body is going to tell you to smoke. And you have to be ready for that and understand that. And we can't get upset with ourselves for having that craving. But we can recognize that although I have a craving, doesn't mean I have to act on it. And that's where we can respond to the craving rather than react to the craving. I want to do this. It feels good. It would feel right. But I'm choosing not to act on it. 
just like I can be very angry, but choose not to express it in a harmful way. I still recognize the feeling. I don't get mad at myself for being angry or I don't get disappointed in myself for feeling anger, but I can choose how to respond to that feeling. And our urges are the same thing. We recognize them. We are aware of them. We notice them, but we don't have to act on them. And if we become more mindful, um, a practice that we can incorporate in our daily lives, but one way to practice that is by meditation and other practices like that, we can become more aware of, okay, this is what I'm feeling, but I'm choosing not to act on it rather than going back into autopilot and uh, making the same mistakes that we've been making that made us want to make the change in the first place. So this study was an interesting one showing how mindfulness exercises, 11 minutes of training affected these people for a whole week of drinking where they drank considerably less than another group that got the relaxation technique um, training. And I think it's really interesting to see. Hopefully they can do more studies like this to recognize the powerful impact that mindfulness and meditation can have on resisting cravings and achieving our bigger long-term goals. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you know i felt that because of what happened this weekend in the nfl anyone who watches sports but in this instance it wasn't just about sports at all i had to maybe make some comments about what's been going on so really if we go back to when it all started all this idea of the national anthem and the protests and whether it's kneeling or standing with locked arms or having a fist raised in the air. Um, it all went back to last year where Colin Kaepernick, who was then on the San Francisco 49ers, he wanted to protest um, against racial injustice, specifically from police officers and racial profiling and the shooting of unarmed black individuals and wanted to make a protest so first he sat on the bench and then he actually consulted with someone who was, um, I don't know if they were formerly in the military, but they were affili affiliated with the military. And they said that actually, you know, kneeling could be a sign of respect. Sometimes they kneel to a fallen soldier or for other reasons. And so you could kneel during the national anthem. And that's uh, what he started to do. And he actually very explicitly expressed this has in no way anything to do with disrespecting the flag or the military or not recognizing them. It has everything to do with what he was trying to do, was, which was put out a message uh, using his platform as an athlete against uh, what's been going on in this country, with um, spe specifically when it came to the police and just racial injustice overall. And since then, it's become this huge thing that I don't think he could have anticipated it would have turned into. And what's also important to note is that he started this protest way before uh, Donald Trump was president of the United States, because now it's turned into this Trump versus the NFL or the players versus Donald Trump, um, when really when this all started had absolutely nothing to do with uh, President Trump. I don't know if he was even the nominee yet uh, for, or 
he wasn't president, that's for sure. Actually, I guess he was the nominee. This was shortly before the election. So he was making a protest, and it started to it didn't really spread that fast, actually, just a few people were doing. But recently, we saw things significantly change. Now, there was also controversy because Colin Kaepernick has not played on a football team or has not been signed to a football team, and some people think it has to do with the protests that he was doing and how this created some controversy and some people did not want to have them on their team because they would say, quote unquote, it would be a distraction. And this led to him not being signed and he still is not signed to any team. Now he was playing very well a few years ago. He had some not so good years, uh, the last years that he's been playing, but many people would agree that he still would be good enough for some team to sign him at least even be their second or third third string quarterback, but as of yet, he is not on any football teams. Now, what happened this past weekend was Donald Trump, um, he was doing a kind of like a campaign type event in Alabama. He made some pretty horrible comments, including um, calling, saying the players who were kneeling, he called them an SOB, which I can't say, on the air exactly what that is um and saying that owner should fire them that sob and get them off the field and the, the crowd there was very happy but of course lots of people were not at all happy with that especially the players that he because he was calling them that term and we saw that there was a very strong reaction by the nfl some players or some teams didn't even come out of the locker room for the national anthem Many others, there was a lot, much more kneeling and signs of uh, togetherness from the NFL players and even owners who were on the field locking arms with their players. And it became a whole huge thing. And now it's become this very divisive issue of what do you do during the national anthem. And I think it's pretty unfortunate that it's become this way. And we've lost sight of what it was all about to begin with, which was someone doing a silent non-violent form of protest um, and now it's become this big divisive issue that either you stand on one side they're saying you stand for the national anthem because you respect the country and you respect the military and if you don't that means you're disrespecting the flag you hate the country you are disrespecting the military and not appreciating what they have done and their sacrifices for you and the country and the freedoms that they help preserve and on the other side, we have people saying that if you don't kneel, if you take it to extreme form, that means you don't care about these issues of racial injustice and you're not with those people who are upset about those issues or you don't care about those issues. So again, it's become very polarizing and it's become something where it's very us versus them, which I think is unfortunate. And I do think that the president played a very big role in turning this into even more of a divisive issue with the rhetoric he used, the words he used, the way he talked about it, and not at all showing that he saw both sides of the issue, which I think is important for us to see. Now, to begin with, um, there's a few few ideas or thoughts that I have about things that come up when people talk about this issue. One that I really dislike is when people say that if someone protests whatever it is, then they should leave this country which to me makes absolutely no sense. The whole purpose of the First Amendment and of something that's very important in America is that we are allowed to express that we are unhappy about something in the country. We can even 
uh, criticize the president, which in some countries, even to this day, you can't do. And if you did, you could be even killed for. But in our country, we have that right. And almost by definition, anytime someone is protesting, it's going to be inconvenient for some people or make people feel uncomfortable. They're not going to like it. And we have to accept that. And the whole idea that if someone doesn't like something in this country, they should leave this country makes no sense to me, especially when we consider uh, Donald Trump's whole campaign was on how things were not okay in this country. When he's saying make America great again, of course, that implies that America at that time was not great and he needed to make it great once more. But there was no cause that he should leave the country if he was unhappy about it. Um, he was praised for that. And I, I might not agree with where he was coming from, but I do feel that someone should be praised if they want things to be better in their country. We talk about patriotism versus nationalism. Nationalism is when you just blindly accept everything your country is doing as good, that you can't criticize it or you can't insult it in any way, and anyone who does so is an enemy to you or is a traitor or is betraying their country. That's the view of nationalism. But a true patriot is someone who cares so much about their country and the people of their country that they wanted to stand for good things and for there to be justice in their country. They don't see it as a bad thing to recognize that their country is not perfect. Um, they see it for what it is. And to me, it's actually similar to how we even view a loved one. Um, you know, if we idealize a loved one, we say they're perfect and everything about them is perfect and you can't say anything wrong about them and they've never done anything wrong. Whereas when we genuinely look at someone with love that you care for, you say that I love them and recognize they do have faults and flaws and maybe we'll even help them to work on those faults and flaws, but I don't see them as perfect. I see them as wonderful and great and I love them, um, although they have flaws. So I think that's to me a more genuine love of country is one that recognizes that the country is not perfect. It does make mistakes. It does do things wrong. It can become better. If we look back at our country 100 years ago, we would hope that there has been a lot of progress that has been made um, because people recognize things needed to change. And we would hope that 100 years from now, the country and also just the world in general would be in a better place. And the only way to do that is to recognize that some things need to change doesn't mean the country is bad. doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of wonderful things. It just means we recognize that things can be better. So the whole notion that if you're not happy with things, leave the country is something I can't totally understand. And I think it's a very knee-jerk reaction that is not okay. And again, anytime someone is protesting, we have to be ready that it's going to feel uncomfortable. You know, we celebrate Martin Luther King Day um, in this country, but when we look back to what people were doing in the civil rights movement, a lot of times it was inconvenient to the people who were around when they would do sit-ins, when they would do marches, when they would do things of that nature, people were inconvenienced and people were frustrated and annoyed and upset. But that's the whole point is that you're trying to make your message get across, which sometimes means in a peaceful protest, you're going to inconvenience some people. The whole idea of nonviolent um, civil disobedience is that you're not going to try to harm people, but yes, people will be inconvenienced and you're going to get your message across. Um, so I think this idea, this issue with the, the national anthem, I don't think there's one right way to deal with it, but I think people should be given the right to protest if they would like. 
you don't have to necessarily agree with it. And I actually think things have been blown out of proportion because now it's become this idea that if you stand for the national anthem, you're making a political statement. And if you kneel, you're making one. And there isn't really somewhere in between because to me, you can be someone who doesn't like racial injustices in this country, but you'd still like to stand for the national anthem because you feel like that honors the country in some way that to you is meaningful. It shouldn't just be one way. But I think, unfortunately, it's becoming very divisive where you have to uh, show your loyalty by what you do during the national anthem. And I'm even wondering if it's affecting the fans at all. I don't know if I haven't heard anything about this, about fans sitting or standing or uh, there being turmoil there. But I hope it doesn't get to that. But I think, unfortunately, it has become a very divisive issue. And to me, it's important to, I've mentioned this before, when someone is protesting, even if you don't necessarily agree with them, but at least hear their message. doesn't mean you have to agree with what they're saying or join them in the protest and follow what they're doing. But I think what Colin Kaepernick was uh, standing for, or in essence kneeling for, was something important and that there is still racial injustice in this country. Uh, there definitely exists systematic ways that it's not as easy for some people, specifically people of colors and African-Americans, to live in this country, and we have to recognize that. Now, does that mean that everyone else is a bad person or we should hate all other people? Of course not. It just means that we can be aware that something is going on, that we need to do, do something about it. And I think what's unfortunate about how polarizing this issue has become is that similar to this last election, people aren't hearing each other, aren't listening to one another. And it's become very divisive. And people who are on one side of the issue only hear people who are agreeing with them. People on the other side are only agreeing with people on their side and becoming more and more extreme. Again, it's not just we have a different opinion or we see things differently. It's either you're a traitor and someone who doesn't love this country and doesn't respect the military, or you're someone who doesn't care about a whole group of people about injustices in this country, and there's no gray area in between. And I think that's really unfortunate because the more polarized we become, the less uh, likelihood there is for us to come together and actually make progress even on the issues we think might need working on because we need everyone to make the, these issues a priority for things to change. So when it comes to these types of issues, whatever it might be, but especially with this one right now since it's so much in the media and people are talking so much about it, Try to pay attention to people who don't necessarily agree with you. Try to talk to someone who sees things the other way. Don't necessarily try to convince them that you're right and they are wrong or that they are bad and you're good, but just try to understand where they're coming from. If they say, I think you should stand for the national anthem rather than start attacking them, listen to what they have to say. Or if someone says, I kneel during the national anthem rather than attacking them, say, well, what does it mean to you? Why are you doing that? And very often we'll see that we don't disagree as much as we think we do. Many people, again, who are kneeling don't want to disrespect the military. And as I mentioned before, that was not at all the intention. And Colin Kaepernick specifically spoke with members of the military to make sure it was clear that this was not a sign of disrespect to the military or disrespect to the flag in some way. But nonetheless, it's important for us to listen to one another to really get to what's going on and not let it become more and more divisive where we become more and more far away and see each other less and understand each other less, but listen to one another to see if there is areas where we can agree and come together. And even if we don't fully agree on everything, at least agree to disagree and still 
be one in that way. Um, would love to hear people's thoughts on this issue if they have any, or of course about anything else as well. But uh, if you're on social media, this is definitely dominating a lot of uh, the articles and posts that people are putting on their different social media platforms. So I thought it was worth talking about a little bit. Okay, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. wanted to talk about another hot-button topic, and that is infidelity, one that I've talked about a lot on this show. I've talked about the book After the Affair, which talks about how couples and individuals can respond after there has been infidelity in the relationship, and also the book Mating in Captivity was a recent book of the week which talks about a lot of different issues, but also at the end talks about infidelity and what we can learn from the affair or how we can recover from it. And Esther Peril has a new book I've not read yet. I think it's called The State of Affairs, which is, again, looking at infidelity. And it's an issue that people care a lot about because it's one of those feelings or experiences that is one of the most difficult things we can experience. Unfortunately, it is fairly common. It's hard to give exact statistics on something that many people are not honest about or hide, but sometimes you get estimates as high as 50% or even I've heard higher than that, but it's hard to exactly say what the percentage is. Um, And writers like Esther Peril are looking at what we can learn from the affair and maybe even how we can change our understanding or our view of them to not see them so negatively or see them the way we have and as i mentioned before there's also a book called after the affair which i think is very good and helpful for us to have books like that that look at those issues that again something that unfortunately does happen and affects lots of relationships Uh, what can we do after the fact some people some relationships and some people will never be able to recover and they end up breaking up and they end the relationship. Some people do stay together and they can even find that possibly it makes their relationship stronger. It's not impossible. It can happen. Now, I think it's important for us to look at those types of things. Mating in Captivity is a great book. I haven't read State of Affairs and then After the Affair. But there's also a concept I think that's important to look at, which is not just after the affair, but before the affair. And I've actually wanted to write something about that. I wanted to talk about that today. Um, This idea that affairs, yes, they do happen. And after it happens, we can look at lots of things and try to figure out how to pick up the pieces. But I think it's important for everyone to think about before the affair. Because before an infidelity takes place, There's lots of things that happen before we get to that place. You know, lots of times people, when they tell stories, it's like, oh, you know, one thing led to another, and then I started an affair with such and such person. Or, you know, before I knew it, I was deeply infatuated with this person, and then we started an emotional affair. And we need to look at those pieces in between, that before I knew it part. Well, 
there was something going on that you knew, or maybe you were avoiding it and not looking at it, but that's what we need to be aware of and recognize that I'm not going to say every affair is avoidable or I have a way to make your relationship affair proof, those types of things. I think, although we'd like to get that type of feeling of security and stability that someone can guarantee to us something is going to happen. I actually dislike when um, psychologists and people in the self-help literature use those types of gimmicky uh, statements. Eight ways to make sure you get the guy you want. Six ways to do this or do that. You know, four ways to make your relationship a fair proof. You know, I don't think anything can guarantee us that for sure. And I think it's not fair to sell that to people in that way. So I try to be careful of the language I use. Um, so I don't have a way to make sure your marriage is a fair proof, but there are ways that we can prevent or make it more likely we can prevent ha having an affair uh, ourselves even. So I don't want to just focus on the partner. Very often when people think about infidelity, we think about, I want to make sure my partner never cheats on me, which of course is an understandable concern and something we don't want to happen. But very little do we focus on, what about me? Obviously, if people are having affairs, it's not always some other person. Sometimes it's us, right? We, we're There are people that are making the choice to go ahead and have that affair. So we have to look at ourselves. So rather than just focusing on our partner, we want to look at ourselves because most people that have affairs, almost all of them, if you ask them years before they had the affair, they would have said, oh, I'll never be unfaithful. That's not me. I'm not that kind of person, or um, I would never let that happen. You know, all those types of things we like to tell ourselves to convince ourselves that we are not that kind of person. But what ends up happening is usually when people have an affair, it's obviously not something planned. Yes, there are some people that maybe before they even get married, they know they won't stay faithful and they've made that decision. But that's a very small number of what we're talking about here. We're focusing more on the everyday kind of person who thought they would remain faithful their whole life but ends up having an affair. So we have to recognize that even how we describe an affair or infidelity to me is important. Because for some people, um, it basically comes down to, well, did you have sex with the person or not? Which to me, there's hundreds of ways you can commit an infidelity without having sex. And even if we take that further, sometimes is intercourse becomes the definition or the line. Uh, this even became the case uh, not to dig up old history, but during Bill Clinton's presidency, was it infidelity? Because if it's just oral sex, is that still considered infidelity um, when it's not complete intercourse? Which to me is, is a joke if we uh, want to really talk about that. But really, if we want to define infidelity, it's any time we break the contract that we've made, and sometimes it's an unspoken contract with our partner in the relationship that we've created. So it doesn't have to be uh, in uh, some kind of physical transgression where there's actual intercourse. It could even be communicating with an ex when we know that our partner would not be okay with that. Um, or flirting with someone in a way that we definitely would not do in front of our partner and we want to make sure no one sees us doing it. To me, those are actually also instances of infidelity. It doesn't just have to be uh, a two-year affair where you're having um, sex and also exchanging gifts and all that a whole relationship, we have to recognize that we can be unfaithful to our relationship in more ways than just crossing those ultimate lines down the line. And also, 
that crossing those initial lines are the ones that open up the doors for those future transgressions to take place. So when we start to flirt with a coworker that we're attracted to, well, that's going to open the door that then you start to develop feelings, there's reciprocation, and you end up somewhere that you'd never wanted to end up and you make a choice that you don't want to make. So we have to first recognize that infidelity isn't about just that final uh, nail in the coffin where we get all the way to the end and we create some kind of physical or emotional relationship. There's many steps before we get there. Just like when couples tell me, you know, over the years we grew apart and they make it seem like this passive thing that just happened. They don't recognize that there was many steps along the way where they were growing apart. And if they actually took a look at the relationship, they would recognize that it takes time to grow apart. It doesn't just end up that way all of a sudden one morning you're fully apart from each other. So the same thing goes with developing a relationship outside of the marriage. And we have to recognize that there are many steps before ending in a full-on relationship with someone else. And we have to recognize those steps and not lie to ourselves in the way that people can do. Oh, well, it's just harmless flirting. Or, well, I have to have friends at work, so it's okay if I start hanging out with this co-worker at work. Again, if you are not comfortable sharing something with your partner, you should already recognize that I'm doing something wrong. Something is not right here. If I'm not telling my partner about this person at work or how much time we spend, or if I'm not telling that person at work about my partner at all, I'm denying that I have a relationship or at least downplaying it. That should give you a red flag that something is going on. Now, not every case of infidelity is caused because there is some huge problem in the relationship. It doesn't always have to be the case in 100% of the instances, but very often what happens is someone is missing something in the relationship or missing something within themselves and they are seeking a relationship on the outside to fill that gap or fill that hole. So first looking at the individual, some people actually who have a fear of intimacy, this might sound strange because if you have a fear of intimacy, you think, well, why would you want to be close with more than one person? But if they have a fear of intimacy, they might actually enter into multiple relationships at the same time because then they don't have to feel so close to any one person. So you have to ask that about yourself. How do I feel about getting close to someone? Because again, sometimes it's seen as a sign of strength, especially for a man to be with many different women even if they're married. Oh, he's such a man, he had to be with different women at the same time. But most of the time what's actually happening is that person is so afraid to get close to just one person and to allow that person to have their heart completely, meaning that they can hurt them completely too, that they'd rather diffuse essentially their own feelings between multiple people and never get close to really anyone because then no one can actually really hurt them. So it's a fear of intimacy, a fear of getting hurt that often pushes someone or is uh, something that might push them towards creating multiple relationships at the same time. So we have to ask that about ourselves. Do I feel okay getting close with someone? Can I actually experience emotional intimacy with someone and not be afraid of that? Because that could be one reason that we push ourselves, one, to diffuse our emotions between multiple people, but also maybe even to sabotage the relationship so that things will end and we can know when it's going to end rather than the unknowing of being with someone, not knowing what can happen next. So you have to ask yourself 
that question. Again, I want to focus on not just is your partner cheating, and that's something a lot of people will want to know about, how do I know if my partner is cheating or not, but actually looking at ourselves and making sure we don't stray, that we stay faithful within the relationship. Going back to what I brought up in the first segment about surfing an urge or recognizing that there is a temptation or craving, but not acting on it, the same is true when we look at infidelity. Now, just because you get married and you commit yourself to one man or one woman doesn't mean that every other man and woman becomes unattractive to you all of a sudden, or that you won't have any sexual desire for anyone other than your partner. That's just not how it works. That's not human. And we have to accept that that's going to just be part of life for everyone who's in a committed relationship. They'll still find other people attractive. That's okay. But it's whether or not they act on those attractions and those temptations that matters. That's the only thing it comes down to. Everyone's going to find people attractive. It's what we do with that attraction that matters. And first, it can be good to accept that because I think sometimes people make that too big of a deal. Oh, I felt such a strong attraction to someone else. Okay, well, that's part of being a human. You're still going to feel that. doesn't mean that you're supposed to act on it or need to go fulfill it or pursue it or be curious and find out how strong that attraction is. It's just part of being human, just like someone who is trying to be on a diet can't say but that ice cream looked so good they know it looks good but if you're choosing not to eat those kinds of foods that's what you're choosing to do it's not about all of a sudden all those things become unappealing to you so you have to recognize we're going to be attracted to other people but that's not that big of a deal don't make that too important a lot of people when they start an affair they say but the connection or the spark that we had was so great i had to go and see what it was going to be like well, again, you're going to be attracted to other people. What you're doing is you're damaging and betraying your partner and even yourself. And also, I mean, not to extend this further, I won't get into this part, but if you have kids, you're also betraying them as well when you make that decision. So you have to ask yourself, what am I actually doing? So we have to recognize the attractions are going to be there and that's okay. And then also recognize if we feel a stronger than normal attraction. And by that, I mean, all of a sudden you feel really drawn towards someone, take a look at what's going on for you and at your relationship. Um, I've talked to some people, and I think it takes someone pretty advanced to be able to do this, but I think we all are capable, who have found themselves drawn to, let's say, a coworker or a friend more than they would expect, that it almost surprised them. And they were able to actually take a look at what is it that this person is giving me? Was it more attention? Was it a feeling that they were really attractive and the feeling of being desired. And they recognized that that was actually missing in their own relationship. And so rather than pursuing a relationship with this outside person, this person outside of the relationship, they recognized that they could work on that in their relationship with their partner. So they could turn to their partner and it's probably not best to say, I've been feeling very attracted to this other man or woman, but saying that here's something I think is missing in our relationship, or here's something I feel like I'm not getting in our relationship. Let's talk about it and let's work on it. And so many people, rather than having these uncomfortable conversations and working on the relationship, they choose to avoid and ignore working on the relationship, facing what's really going on and fulfilling what they're lacking somewhere else outside of the relationship, which like other coping mechanisms like using drugs or alcohol, not only doesn't take away the initial problem they're having in the relationship, but now they have this additional problem of an affair that 
can damage their relationship, already is damaging, whether or not the person finds out, and is harmful to them, and now they have to deal with. So it's important to recognize that when you feel that desire to go somewhere else, to see what's missing in the relationship, or also within yourself. If you have low self-esteem, for various reasons, you might be drawn towards this. If you don't feel very good about yourself, you might want someone from the outside to give you attention or that need. Sometimes I hear people say, we need to feel like other people still desire us, so we have to go flirt with other people. I don't think uh, that's necessarily true. Now, does anyone like getting attention from other people? Of course, they're going to like it. If someone randomly came up to you and said, I think you look very good today, no one's going to dislike that and you shouldn't dislike it. But if we're going out seeking it and try to create those situations where someone gives us that attention, that means we're trying to fill some hole and some void that's there that isn't necessarily a healthy thing for us to do. We're not supposed to be going out trying to get that void filled from other people. We can recognize that maybe something is missing within ourselves. So this was just a brief description or discussion on recognizing that infidelity or having an affair is something that the temptation is always going to be there, or we can understand that we're going to be attracted to other people. But we should also understand that getting to that place where we start a relationship with someone else is not something that we just fall into, or all of a sudden it just turns up. There, there's many ways and many steps before we get to creating a relationship with someone else that we can be aware of. And going back to the earlier study today of being mindful of what we're doing, if we actually take a look at what's going on, why am I so attracted to this person? What's either missing in me or in the relationship? Or am I just feeling attracted to this person and I can accept that and not act on it? What can I do with that information to make the best choice for myself going forward? Because an affair is much more likely to be avoidable if we're aware of what we're doing rather than if we're on autopilot and thinking we're just going forward in a way that makes sense in that moment. All right, we've reached another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Farid. Hello. Thank you for your time. Sure, thanks for uh, calling. Dr. Farid, uh, the subject that you were talking about, I, uh, I always would uh, kind of like wonder why uh, the, uh, the impact of uh, the situation that happened to people when the partner find out Mm-hmm. There is a hard, very hard impact on the partner, and also it just my I'm wondering if there is neurological impact on the brain because it does it. It seems to me. I mean, like I'm no psychologist or anything, but I just wondering that 
it doesn't have anything to do with how much love they have for each other, and it doesn't make any difference that how long they were together. It seems that the impact almost the same for the partners that find out about that uh, affair. <laughs> so if you could c- kind of give us some information on what happened when, when the partner finds out and why is it has so impact on on uh, 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 on the partners mm-hmm. um, so are you are you almost in a way saying you're surprised at how much people get affected by it in, I mean like I'm more surprised that even in the situations that the partners does not have you know they're not like they're uh, they just you know they were so much in love they find out or anything. Mm-hmm. In many cases, people in their uh, marriage, a long-time marriage, even uh, they don't have much of a feeling for each other anymore. It's just like a brother and sister they're living together. But still, when they find out the other partner had, you know, affair, and they're... they're the impact of that is so harsh on people. Yeah. You know, so of course every relationship is going to be different, but when you're asking why is it so painful, um, almost no matter what, there's a huge betrayal that's happening there. Even if the relationship wasn't close or they haven't been close for some time, there's going to be a strong feeling of betrayal that the person has again, broken this contract that we have together, this commitment that we've made to one another, it's always going to be painful. But going back even in a way further, a romantic relationship in a lot of ways is a, some ways like we can say a recreation of that primary attachment we had with our parents. And so the feeling we have towards our partner, and we see this in a lot of ways, you know, if we think about when people start to get to know each other, it's very similar to how even we might interact with a baby. You don't even call each other baby or we have pet names for each other. Um, we, we, we look into each other's eyes. If you ever have seen a, a newborn or not a newborn, maybe when they're a few months older, the way they look into their mom's eyes, I mean, it looks like someone who's deeply in love with someone. And in some ways, it's very similar. So I can't say specifically on the neurological side what happens in the brain, but the connection we're making and the attachment we're making is very similar to that which is made with our parents. So it's a very strong, deep connection. And that's why even sometimes when people talk about breakups or when they find find out about infidelity or divorce, they'll say it feels like death. Because for a child, separating from their attachment figures really is death. That's why we get so attached is that we need them to survive. And emotionally and psychologically, we can feel that same way with our partner. We're not actually going to die without them. But it can feel that way. And even when we hear poems and love songs about heartbreak, sometimes they use those types of phrases of dying or feeling like you can't survive without the person. A lot of ways it's that we're, you know, recapitulating this feeling that we had for our, our parents. It's that same type of attachment. So, of course, when, when we find out that we've been betrayed by the person who we see in this way and we feel that way towards, we're going to feel devastated. And the experience is almost always going to be one of devastating pain, loss, Um, we feel betrayed, we can feel the person, why do they choose that person over me, what's wrong with me, Um, trust of course becomes, you know, you're talking about 
why is it so hurtful? Another issue is the trust. How could I trust you anymore? Or why did I trust you before? It's very, it can be very traumatic when people find out about an affair. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, I mean, like my question always is that how come, you know, they, it's almost most people feel the same, the same way and it just, uh, maybe uh, different or shorter or longer period to get over with, mm-hmm. but at the beginning it starts the same thing, and this mind, as you said, it just goes like, okay, uh, why? Uh, uh, who's that person? Why did that happen? And all of that, and all the questions that might not even help you to get over mm-hmm. it, but it always keeps coming and coming and coming, and there are yeah. a lot of thoughts in your head. And then, I mean, like, there are sometimes the feeling of you want to come out of your skin. Mm-hmm. Now, have you ever experienced... Uh, yes. the, okay, which side of it were you on? I was the one I found out that my partner has uh, betrayed me. Okay. Was it in a marriage or in a relationship? In a long relationship. Okay. I'm sure that and, was very painful. Yes. And then recently, uh, one of my very close friends, she, uh, she had the same experience. She found out uh, about her husband, and but they were like about... 50 years of marriage and all these years she never ever thought i mean like no one around them could even think that her husband might have a affair and then when she uh, was expressing herself to me it was it seemed that we had the same uh, similar um feelings and questions in our head and you you know the uh-huh. time that you you don't i mean although you know that you can't do anything but if there is something that what can i do uh I mean, yeah so i mean things happen yeah and this is why you know it's, it's it's can be helpful to talk to other people who've gone through similar things Everyone's experience is going to be unique, but there are oftentimes similar themes in how people respond to different types of issues or different traumas. And that's why support groups can be helpful or talking to a friend who's gone through it can be so helpful because you can understand yourself through understanding the other person and their experience. And that can feel very good. You know, another thing I want to bring up when we talk about uh, making that connection with the parents and the new relationship is that, you know, this is why when a single child has a new child come into the home, it feels like infidelity. It can feel that same way. And we talk about the jealousy that the child feels, and sometimes parents try to downplay that and say, well, now you have a sibling. Why are you upset? It's that we have to recognize that to them it is this feeling of losing you or that almost you're being unfaithful to them because now there's this other child in the picture. But I do want to come back to your own situation. And something, it's interesting, because of what you were saying, I'm wondering, were you in some ways trying to minimize your own pain or wonder why am I so hurt by this? That's something I was wondering in what you described. Did you not want to be as hurt as you were by the affair? Yeah, I mean, like, when I look at it now, when I look 
look at it, that there were times that I had no control over what it comes to my mind mm -hmm. and what it came to. I mean, like, even if, if you would have asked me then, before that I find out, it was like I was ready to separate from the person. But when that happened, it was just like, as, as you say, that somebody betray you and you feel like, okay, I mean, there is some very, 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 uh, I, I, as I think more, it was more something in my brain that I could not have any control over it. Would you, so you became obsessed with the affair? Uh, I mean, first of all, you, you hate the person who did that. Uh -huh. Although, I mean, like, then you want to, uh, there's sometimes the feeling of uh, getting back sure. with him. That's very then, common, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, it, at the at the time that you can control your brain, it's like all the pieces tells you that you have to move on. Mm -hmm. But but when when that attack, I can I can I kind of uh, name it like an attack. It attack you, and then you wanna. Everything in your brain or in your thought will uh, shift to the other side that I should stick to it till, till, to see what will happen with him or with that person. You know, it, it's... Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you use the word attack and you're talking about your own mind and your own thoughts. And the book I talked about Monday that I touched upon today... Uh, the happiness trap and looking at acceptance and commitment therapy, I think if you look at some of those themes, it might be helpful for you. That mm -hmm. recognizing that rather than seeing it as an attack and this, I have to fight against this, it's recognizing, okay, someone who I was in a long-term relationship had an affair. So, of course, I'm devastated, I'm hurt, I'm so mad at him. All those types of feelings make sense, but also it makes sense that I have this longing to be with him again or to win him back or to make things like they were before the affair or how they were when things were good. But you don't have to necessarily fight with that part of yourself, but recognize it. I, I can understand that I'm having this feeling. Now, how you choose to act doesn't have to be based on that feeling either, but I think you'd be better off recognizing that it's understandable that I'm having this feeling, and let me first of all just pay attention to it and see what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking, not try to fight it or resist it or feel that it's an attack on my brain or it's an attack on me and I have to fight against it, but say, okay, of course, I was with someone for a very long time, I found out about an affair, I'm going to have a whole bunch of emotional reactions and thoughts, and we don't have control over our thoughts and our feelings. We'd like to think that we do, but we really don't. They come and they go, and yes, over time we can have some influence on them. So I don't want to say we have no effect on them, but to think we can control them is not possible. You can't control if you're going to miss the person or not, or you can't control if you're going to have a desire to get back with him. 
But when it comes up, what you can control is what you choose to act, how you choose to act. So you say, okay, I'm feeling like I want him back or I'm feeling like I want to know more. That's another thing you brought up, which I think is important. Very often, our curiosity, of course, is going to be there. It's natural to want to know, you know, what did you guys, how long has it been going on? Where did you sleep with that person? What did you do? I want to know about the sex. I want to know about this. And people, they very often ask those questions, but we have to recognize it's not going to help me to know the detail of their sex life. Just like it doesn't help you to know the details of your partner's past sexual experiences either. That's not going to help you. You might be curious, so you can recognize the curiosity, but say, okay, I'm not going to ask or I don't want to know because I think if anything, it'll just hurt me. So I really did enjoy reading that book um, that I talked about, and maybe it'll be good for you to check it out, The Happiness Trap, um, to recognize that there's... The Happiness Trap? Yes, by Russ Harris. Because I feel that you're fighting with yourself in your own head when you don't necessarily need to do that. You can just recognize... It's a finding out about an infidelity, even in a relationship that wasn't doing very well, is going to be very painful. It's going to hurt a lot. And what you're talking about are the very common experiences, the pain, devastation, hurt, but also wanting to win the person back or have them back. Because now we feel a competition with this person that they're having the affair with. Even if we don't care about the person, all of a sudden people feel this strong urge to get that person back. We want to win. And instead of judging that feeling, just recognizing for what it is, a response to the infidelity, and you can't control it or make them disappear. But if they do come, you just want to deal with them in the best way that you can for yourself. Okay, and then and another uh, maybe question is that uh, for my friend that recently that happened, so based on my experience, because uh, I told her, her all the time i was telling her that's okay you think that about this or that but just let go and uh, uh because we can't do anything about it but these are the feeling that you're gonna have and but what i don't understand is that okay even for myself it was like one day one day it just happened that for me that I said that, okay, this is over. Mm-hmm. But then but the next I day it would I come mean, back. Like, I, never, I never could understand why I had those emotional, which I saw my friend had the same. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that maybe something when you lose your parents or, you know, they say that there is a, five stage you go through to mm-hmm. of grief yeah i i thought that maybe this this thing that happened to you has anything like that or these are different from like the loss of the you know uh loved ones and stuff like that so well you know when we look at loss um and grieving it's not just like, you know, we can we go through the same stages, essentially, they obviously are going to feel different. But with any type of loss, it can be loss of a job, it could be loss of a loved one, it could be loss of your health. Uh, you know, loss is going to create a grief response, which is going to be the same, almost no matter what we're talking about. Again, you might go through it differently, but the stages and the way we would describe it, it's going to be similar. And again, I'm hearing a lot of resistance in what you're talking about in resisting what you're feeling or not wanting to feel what you're feeling Um, or something else. It seemed like you maybe were saying, which is something 
people experience all the time. When, when we're trying to grieve, it's not a linear process. So time does heal, but it doesn't mean that every day is going to be better than the day before. So a lot of times people go through a breakup or, you know, they find out about something like infidelity. And then one day they're like, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good about it. I think I'm over it. I'm fine. And then the next day they wake up and they're like, it feels back like day one. And like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get better because I feel like I did the first day. And so it's not a linear process. Hopefully overall, you feel like you're improving with time, but you shouldn't be so upset that if you find yourself all of a sudden worrying about something you haven't worried about in a week or having a feeling you haven't had in a while, that means you're going backwards or you're not making progress. That's just the way these things go. We don't just um, get over them instantly or just because one morning you have a thought of, you know what, actually, I don't care that he did that. doesn't mean you're always going to feel that way. And we can't control our thoughts or we shouldn't get mad at ourselves if we feel something again. Because like I said before, we don't have complete control over what we think and feel. In a lot of ways, we're observing what we're thinking and feeling in a lot of ways. And we want to just be aware that, okay, I can't control it. But when it comes, I can handle it no matter what that feeling is. And I won't get upset with myself for feeling X, Y, or Z. So best best way to help others is just let them have their thoughts and feelings and come and go. And uh, because there were so many other people telling her uh, that, okay, you should not feel that way. It's yeah. not worth it. Or That's a big like thing. That. You, yeah, you know what? We, I do want to talk to you a bit more because there's some topics related to this I want to discuss mm-hmm. with you. So just hang on line. We, we kind of went sure. past the commercial break and we'll talk in a few minutes, okay? okay. All Thank right. you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her caller. Are you still there? Yes. Okay. So you were talking about yourself having gone through having a partner who committed an affair and then trying to be there for a friend more recently who went through the same thing. And you said she was married and found out after many years of marriage about the affair. Okay. And then right before the break, you were saying that other friends were telling her, don't feel this way. Right. Is that, I want to make sure I got that part right. Okay. And why do you feel that way? Or like, what's that? What were the ways that that, is wrong and uh you know, you should get over it. I mean, like that happened and uh, uh, he's such and such. So <laughs> don't feel that and, you know, go with your life. Yeah. And, you know, so and these are very common things that people tell someone to, when they are going through something. Uh, you know, even if they're just crying about something, we usually say, don't cry about it. Don't be sad about it. You don't need to worry about it or it's not a big deal. We always just try to minimize and we think that our role in supporting someone is to just tell them not to feel sad anymore. And that's a loving thing to do. And so first we have to look at how we deal with ourselves. And that's why I was saying it to you. First of all, we can't control our feelings. So when we say don't be sad, it doesn't make sense. It's like if you walk into a room and someone says, when you walk into that room, don't be cold. Well, if you walk in and you feel cold, you feel cold. You can't just control that. And I, yeah, can you put on a jacket or do something about it? Possibly. But we can't just say, don't feel something. Or when you eat that food, I want you to, it to taste bad to you. Or when you eat that, I want it to taste good to you. We can't control those things. And we can't control the thoughts and feelings that come to our mind. Again, we can have influence on them over time. But to think that as soon as a thought comes, our job is to control it. Or a feeling comes, it's our 
job is to control it, it creates much more of a problem than it does any kind of help and it doesn't work. So when it comes to someone else, the same thing. We can't control our own thoughts or feelings and we should never tell someone that that's their solution. So if someone says, I'm sad about something, your response being you shouldn't feel that way, one, it invalidates them for what they're feeling, which is the pain that they're experiencing. And two, you're making them feel judged that they're feeling that way. And it doesn't work. They can't just make it go away. So I'm not surprised that that's what most people are telling her because that's what most people tell most people. They say, get over it. Oh, well, if he cheated on you, well, then he's a, a jerk and a this and a that. So you should be happy you're not with him anymore or whatever else they're telling them. But we have to recognize she feels devastated. She feels hurt. Um, and I try to be careful not to put timelines on these things, but how long ago did she find out about the affair? Oh, this, this uh, recently happened like about a couple of months ago. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, it's still pretty fresh. Now people might, people right. get frustrated. They hear you crying about the same thing. And sometimes people can't tolerate that. They can't even cr tolerate the first time, let alone the 10th time. Um, but you know, this idea of you should be over it already is also a very painful thing. I hear people say, okay, so-and-so died. You're still sad about so-and-so dying. Oh, you need to be over it by now. He's already gone and they're in a better place. You have to be over it. And we can't force someone to, to get over something. And even getting over, I sometimes don't like that terminology because some type of losses, we never fully get over it. You know, if a mother or father loses a child, I don't ever expect them to get over that. Now, can life go on and can they continue? Yes, but are they ever going to be over it? No, it's always going to be a wound that they carry with them and possibly every day of their life it'll be there. Um, and same goes with other losses. We don't necessarily just get over them. We learn to live with them and we can move on in that way. And no one should ever tell anyone else when they should be over something. It doesn't work and it doesn't help. Um, so I'm not surprised again that that's the advice that she's getting because that's what most people tell most people. But I would hope that you can let her have that space to feel whatever it is she's feeling. If she's still down, yeah, well, she's still down. You know, she found out about an affair. She feels betrayed. She feels hurt. She's probably looking back at her life in a different way. There's a lot of things she has to figure out. Um, now, I hope she gets some kind of help if she still finds herself down months and years later. Maybe some therapy would help to help her heal. Yeah, she is, she is getting help. Good. And also, but even, even though, I mean, like, uh, this is my experience with myself, and I, I think, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I think that the people who go uh, through this um, um, devastating things in their life, they have to come up, I mean, like, they have their own space, as you said, and then people, I mean, unfortunately, in our culture, it's like something, such a thing that happened to people. So people want to p participate and be there and, you know, talk to them. And uh, I, when, when that happened to me, I didn't want to talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel comfortable. You know, everybody at, uh, at the first they will go that oh okay uh, how are you doing and then they go right jump in to give you you know suggestion what to do and how you should be and stuff like that so you don't want to deal with that and you don't want to you cannot I mean not that you don't want to but you are in a state that you cannot talk 
about it and uh, not necessarily, I mean, like maybe one or two person you can, uh, but the rest of the people you really don't want to see or talk to them. And they get offended by uh, offended by the why doesn't she want to talk to me? I well, mean, like, the, what uh, is this? that's <laughs> yeah. And you're, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because you know when we're going through something, we'll always say it's good to talk to someone or someone's people about what you're going through, which I think is definitely true. But there's a few things. First of all, we have to be ready to talk. Sometimes right after something happens, we might need a little bit of time. It's just we're just too overwhelmed with emotion. And we need to process it a little bit more for, before we can talk. And that's okay. And then secondly, we, although I think it's good to talk to people, we should be very aware of who we choose to talk to. It doesn't mean you talk to everyone about everything. You know, there's some people that you feel like, you know, when I open up to them, I don't feel very good afterwards. They, right. like you're saying, either they give too much advice that doesn't feel good or they make you feel judged or whatever else it might be. You might not feel comfortable. And it's, of course, up to you how you feel. Um, you're not doing them a favor by going to them to talk to them. It's if you need it and you're supposed to take care of yourself. So you shouldn't care what someone else thinks if they want you to talk. To, you know, someone else can't tell you, you need to talk to me about what you're going through. That doesn't make sense. If we're there for someone, we're there if they want us to be there. Um, true love means that I'm there for you. If you want my love, if you don't want it, then I'm not going to force it down your throat. So we don't need to be concerned about other people getting offended that we're not going to them, but we need to be mindful of who we do go to because and sometimes you might go to different people for different issues. You know, I know someone might say, one of my friends is very good for relationship advice, but if I ask them about my kids, I really don't like what they say and they get too judgmental, so I won't bring up my kids to them. Um, but I like to go to them for this reason. So we can be mindful of who we choose to talk to. And as listeners, we have to recognize that although, yes, it does feel good if someone trusts us and confides in us, that we can't force them or make them feel guilty for not talking to us about what they're going through. That's their personal choice and preference of what they want to do. But again, people don't recognize that although they think they're trying to be there for someone else, they're too consumed with their own feelings. Oh, you don't want to talk to me about what you're going through? Well, screw you. Okay, now you're making it about you, not about the other person. Being there for exactly. someone means you're there how they want you to be there. You're giving them the support that they want. You don't choose what feels good to someone else. They let you know what feels good to them. So I hope you can give her that advice to her, that feedback that she doesn't have to talk to everyone. Yeah, exactly what I'm doing right now is just telling the people around her who are really concerned and care. I'm just telling them that, okay, she doesn't want to talk to anyone, so just let, let her be because there is nothing she can talk to you right now, and she doesn't want to hear anyone. Mm -hmm. And don't get it personally because, you know, you just want to tell her that you're going to be there. By right. not making her feel even worse that all the people around me, now they're upset that why do I talk to them? So don't add up to her, you know, issues. That's much more helpful than just picking up the phone and keep calling her and saying that, oh, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. And why doesn't she talk to me? Or right. like well, that. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You know, we have to give someone that space. Again, how they want help is how they want help. Someone might say, you know what? I'm feeling down about this, but right now I don't feel like talking about it. Can we just watch a movie together and laugh a little bit? That might feel good right. to me. Or right now I want to do this or do that. And we, again, if we're supporting someone, we're going to be for them 
be there for them the way they want us to be there for them. And something else that happens when we see someone going through some kind of loss or if they're not feeling very good is that people can can put a pressure on us to feel better. Like, you better stop being depressed about that. Or maybe they don't directly say it, but indirectly they let the person know, we don't want you to be sad about that anymore. And that doesn't help the person. It again becomes about our feelings and not theirs. If they're down, they're still down. Do we like to see them sad? Of course not, because we care about them. But are we going to accept them no matter what they feel? Yes, that's the true meaning of friendship or love is that we're going to accept you as you are feeling, even towards ourself. And that's what I was saying for you and your own feelings to recognize that don't try to force yourself or push yourself to feel something or not feel something anymore. Just accept that that's what you're feeling and recognize that and treat it with love and acceptance rather than trying to push it away. So and another, um, I mean, like another thing that I, uh, I would like to know uh, your opinion about it is that uh, there are many people around us that uh, like, they have lived their life. There are very old people, but some issues like that, like a divorce or, you know, things that happened to them in their, uh, when they were very young. And at that point, we all know that there were no psychologists to help in, in these issues and no people around us really knew what are these things, you know, uh, the impact uh, on the people. So I still see some people around me that they have those feelings that has, they had it. And right now, when, whenever the, uh, the issue comes up, they kind of like uh, they're angry, they are upset, and they really, uh, they're still talking about what happened to them. It was unfair, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So for for those people, is it uh, better to let them just, you know, talk about it? Or what is it that we can do to help these people to, you know, when the conversation is, as I said, again, people just tell them, oh, it was uh, 60 years ago. Uh, why are you still on that issue? And uh, for my understanding is that maybe what happened to them, uh, they they did not had a chance to end it, so that they live. Sure, uh, with you know, those it, feelings. It, yeah. Well, it's hard for me to tell you exactly what to do in every one of these situations because they are different. Sometimes some people. You know, as much as I was saying we give people a chance or we have to give ourselves times to get over time to get over something, people sometimes don't want to get past something. They like to hold on to what happened to them. But at the end of the day, you can't make that decision for them if they should move on or they shouldn't. So for yourself, you can recognize these things. But with other people, you know, I wouldn't focus too much on well, how do I get them to do this or that? I, I don't know. It's hard enough to try to make those kinds of changes within ourselves, let alone to try to create something in someone else so i wouldn't get too caught up in you know if they want to talk about it if you don't feel like talking about it anymore you don't have to um that's always up to you to say i don't really feel like having this conversation again but if they want to stay in the same place sometimes people are making that choice to stay the victim of something that happened in their past because it's easier than facing it and working on it now that's for other people but i would say focus on yourself and saying well where am i maybe doing that in my own life when you see that in someone else rather than how do I help them 
whether it's change or fix it or whatever it is I want to do, come back to yourself and say, where might I be in that same place that this person is? Right. Yeah. But thank you for your call. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sure. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right. We're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back so in the previous segment we talked to the caller and the idea of what we should feel was something that was coming up a lot we should be over this or we shouldn't think this we shouldn't feel this way or uh, we shouldn't feel this way anymore and that's something we do to ourselves and the people around us very often but this is something that uh, as i mentioned in the book on monday and talked about it but today the happiness trap and the focus of act acceptance and commitment therapy a concept I think is very important for us all to be aware of. And even uh, in other books, I talked about this year, like Emotional Agility by Susan David, we saw this too. But this idea that rather than trying to resist what we're feeling, fight what we're feeling, um, change what we're feeling immediately, we're much better off first recognizing, making space for, observing, and getting in touch with what we are feeling. And so first we have to recognize that this idea of bad feelings and good feelings gets us in a lot of trouble or negative emotions and positive emotions. Yes, some feelings feel more pleasant than others. When we're feeling happy, that does feel nicer than when we're feeling miserable or very, very angry. But there has to be a recognition that as a human, we're going to experience all of the feelings, the whole range of human emotions, and that we should actually want to feel all of those things. In fact, in order to do anything meaningful or to have anything meaningful in your life, what's going to come with it are the good and the bad feelings. There's nothing meaningful that you can have in your life that doesn't come with it negative feelings or at least the risk of having negative feelings. You want to have a romantic relationship, you have to be ready to First of all, feel lots of pains within the relationship. There's negative feelings you're going to have um, during the relationship from being hurt from your partner with things they said, do, um, missing them, all sorts of other feelings. And on top of that, there's always the risk and pain of the relationship ending or a topic that came up a bunch today, infidelity. There's lots of ways you can get hurt in that relationship. But in order to have one, we have to be willing to accept that risk or not even just that risk, but that understanding that what will come with it is negative feelings as well, or the ones that don't feel very pleasant in the moment. So having that philosophy that negative feelings are nothing scary, they're nothing for me to avoid, they are nothing that can take me down or ruin my life, but they're just something I'm going to experience. And like all feelings, they come and go like the waves of the ocean. And again, we can't fight the waves of the ocean. You can't try to pull a good wave in and keep it for longer or push a negative wave away. All you can do is enjoy or experience each wave as it's coming in and see when it goes. And that's it. And the same goes for our feelings. Watch them come and go. Experience them as they're, they're here, knowing that they won't last forever 
and also knowing that they can tell you a lot and use them as information. If I'm upset, what might I be upset about? If I'm sad, what's going on? If I'm happy, what is it that I'm feeling good about? And then recognize that they're going to go away as well. And so when we're helping other people, as the previous caller was talking about, we also not only can't force the waves in and out of our own life emotionally, we can't do that for someone else and expect that for someone else either. And all we do when we try to tell them to feel this or feel that or you shouldn't feel this anymore is to hurt them and make them feel invalidated for how they're feeling. If you're feeling sad, we understand that that's not going to feel very good. But if on top of that I tell you you shouldn't feel sad, now you feel even worse. You already have that negative feeling, but now you have this feeling about your feeling. You maybe feel sad about your sadness or you feel angry at yourself for being sad. It doesn't help. And you also feel that I don't care about your feelings. I'm not validating your feelings and making you feel good or okay. So as much as we might think when we see someone suffering or someone in pain, that the way to help them is to get them to stop feeling that way or tell them not to feel that way, we must recognize that's not going to be helpful. That doesn't do them any good. One, because we can't do it. And two, because you're making them feel bad for what's the reality of their current situation. So we want to have a relationship with our feelings and of course try to cultivate that in other people that we are just in touch with and aware of what we're feeling but we're not going to shy away, judge or be afraid of what it is that we might be feeling in any given moment. And as I told the previous caller, we can't control our thoughts and feelings as much as we think we can or we would like to do. We wish we could just always feel good or not think about that memory that brings us a lot of pain. But rather than try to resist it, we're better off recognizing, oh, that painful memory is back. It doesn't feel very good, but I can let go of it, or I can see that it's here and I know it'll go away. But if we try to resist it, what we experience is a rebound effect. Just like if someone says, try not to think about a white bear, and they keep saying, don't think about a white bear, all that's going to happen is you're going to think about a white bear more and more, and it's going to actually become an obsession. The same is true with our painful feelings and thoughts. If you tell yourself, don't feel it, or you tell yourself, don't think about something, you're much more likely to think about it. But if you say, oh, hey, I'm having that thought again, there it is. It doesn't feel very good, but I know it's going to go away sometime soon, and I can handle it while it's here. You're going to be feeling much better and feeling much more okay. And in the long run, even though it might not be your goal, the thought or feeling will stay with you much shorter than if you try to push it away or force it or pretend that it doesn't exist. And that was essentially the title, The Happiness Trap, comes from this idea that we think we always have to be happy. I'm supposed to always feel good as a human being. My default should be to be happy. If I'm not happy, somehow I'm defective. Uh, a good life is one without negative feelings. And I should always control my thoughts and feelings to make them positive. And this obsession we have with happiness, unfortunately, one, doesn't work. And two, takes away from what really is a meaningful life, which is one that involves all of the thoughts and feelings that a human being can experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, some feeling good, some not feeling so good. But that's all okay. And so if we can learn to accept our feelings then we can actually just work with them rather than try to force them to become a certain way and then take the actions that we think make the most sense. Just because we feel something doesn't mean we have to act on it. 
Just because I'm angry doesn't mean I have to become violent. Just because I'm having an urge or craving doesn't mean I have to act on it. But the more I'm aware of what I'm experiencing, the more I get to actually be aware of what I'm doing and make the steps in my life that I feel good about. And that's where the commitment part of ACT comes in, acceptance and commitment therapy. I take committed action towards my goals and the things that I value, which means first I have to understand what I truly want, what truly matters to me, the type of person I want to be, the type of life I want to live, and then choose to make my actions fit with those values. And that's what's going to feel good. So rather than the happiness definition, he talks about two definitions of happiness, one being feeling good in the moment, but the second one living a meaningful and rich life. We can help create a rich and meaningful life where the actions that we take, the behaviors uh, that we do are in line with the values and things that matter to us. And so we can be aware of our feelings, but not let them dictate our lives, but experience them as they come and go as we do with our thoughts, and in that way, live a life that is more fulfilling because when you take decisions or make decisions and actions based on what we truly care about and what we truly value. A reminder for the book of the week, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I'm going to talk about it on next Wednesday's show because, as I mentioned before, on Monday's show, Monday night at 8 p.m., I'll be joined by family attorney Raymond Heckmat, and we are going to talk about prenuptial agreements, um, a controversial topic that sometimes leads to pain and destruction in relationships, but as he's going to talk about, doesn't necessarily have to. So I'm looking forward to having that discussion with him this coming Monday night. All right. Thank you all to call to all the callers and the listeners out there. Thank you to Raman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.